Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The 2016 Sundance Film Festival opens in Park City today. And UPR's Sundance correspondent Steve Smith is in Park City. He'll join me for the program to set the scene, tell us about the films he's excited about. Then we're going to talk with two filmmakers whose films are showing at Sundance. Josh Fox's films, Gasland and Gasland 2, are credited with galvanizing the anti-fracking movement. Gasland was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Film. In his new film, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, Fox ruminates on climate change, which he says is the greatest threat our world has ever known. We'll be talking about climate change, renewable energy, and nonviolence. Later in the program, Otto Bell will join us. His film, The Eagle Huntress, executive produced by Morgan Spurlock, tells the true story of Ashilpan, a 13-year-old eagle huntress from Mongolia. It's a 2,000-year-old tradition there, all male. She's trying to break through that gender barrier. Those uh, conversations are coming up. Hope you'll join us for uh, those. We uh, now bring in uh, Steve Smith, our UPR Sundance correspondent from Park City. Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. It's good to be here. So you're in uh, you're in Park City. I think you're 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 down there every year for Sundance. I am. It's something I've I just kind of become the January ritual for me. I think, and uh, I must enjoy it enough to come up in the the cold and. But the air is clear up here, and it's just mm-hmm. a, it's a good time. It's a great thing for Utah to be having. Yeah, this is uh, one of the biggest festivals in the world. Uh, so you're, a, I assume you're a big movie buff. That's why you go. I am, and I, I kind of in particular like uh, a lot of the independent film movement. I think it some way drives the industry as, as far as it's really the only outlet now for stories about real people, about... Uh, things that aren't superheroes and comic books, and and so I think these movies always have a place in in the film industry. And there are some always some big premieres, uh, things you see uh, on a wide scale later on from from Sundance. So let's uh, I want to jump in. What's um, what's what's getting the buzz? Maybe we can start with the uh, you know theatrical films. Well, you know. Uh, Buzz this year, uh, there's a few. Uh, one of them is in the dramatic film competition, and that's called Goat, and it's directed by Andrew Neal. I believe it's his second film that he's directed, and uh, it's about fraternity hazing and, and how it can go too far, and it's going to be a very dramatic film, for sure. But uh, that stars Nick Jonas, who, of course, is famous as a popular singer right now, and that's going to be... Uh, Quite, uh, quite the movie, and they're expecting a big crowd for that. Birth of a Nation, which of course there was the old Birth of a Nation, and this is kind of a uh, a new take on on that story, and it's told now a little bit from a different perspective. That's also in the dramatic film competition, and that one looks to be pretty interesting. Um, also, there's a movie called Free World, directed by Jason Liu, and that stars Elizabeth Moss and a few other people, and that's going to be uh, promises to be quite a good film. Also, uh, John Krasinski, who's known to everybody from being in the office, he is directing his first movie here. He's directed some episodes of The Office before, but this is his first feature film, and uh, so he's going to be here uh, with one of the actresses, Anna Kendrick from Pitch Perfect is in it and he's going to be here he's also going to be doing a panel discussion 
in the week as well. Uh, so those look like some of the big as far as uh, feature film type ones. Uh, what about the documentaries? What are you looking forward to? You know, there's a kind of a theme in the documentaries, a couple of themes this year. One of them is gun violence. Um, Newtown, of course, looking at the the massacre of the, the children in Newtown, Connecticut. And then another one called Under the Gun. So those are going to be very controversial for sure. Maybe we'll draw a few crowds and protests. There's also a lot of documentaries that are about people related to the film industry. Uh, we have Eat That Question, the Frank Zappra documentary. Uh, we also have Norman Lear, who is premiering tonight. He's going to be here. He's 93 years old. Of course, he's the creator of All in the Family and Maud and a lot of those 1970s shows. That's one of the premieres tonight. Spike Lee is bringing his Michael Jackson documentary. It's called Michael Jackson Journey from Motown to Off the Wall. That one is, is one of the hot tickets, for sure. A lot of people want to get into that. Uh, Richard Linklater, Dream is, uh, Dream is Destiny. That is about the kind of the journey that the director who did Boyhood last year or a couple of years ago, uh, also Days of Confused and many other movies has, has taken. So he will be here. He will also be up here to do a special screening of Days to Confuse, and he's going to be adding his commentary to it as people watch the movie, which could be pretty interesting. Yeah, that, that could be. I, I remember Days and Confused. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it's took a very me back funny kind of, movie. Kind of to my high, high school days. Um, although I wasn't into some of the stuff those guys were, but, it, you know, just kind of the sentiment. <laughs> um, there's also one called... Uh, uh, author, the J.T. Leroy story, and that's about a 16-year-old literary sensation, um, and a Maya Angelou documentary. So there's a lot of of good good documentaries, and Sundance is kind of known for its documentaries now. I think they really are uh, kind of the front runners to getting some of these ones out there. So those are some of the some of the the what's getting the buzz, what you're looking uh, forward to. Uh, by the way, what's the What's the feel there on opening day, usually? Is it pretty crowded? Yeah, this weekend, today, you can feel that it's kicked up a few notches. There's uh, The traffic is is getting crazy. People are running around trying to get things set up for the last-minute details, and almost 60,000 people are preparing to descend into town, or are descending into town. So it's <laughs> going to be... Uh, this poor little town is going to be stretched to its limits, I think. But the energy is there, and people are excited and and ready to go. Yeah, 60,000 people crammed into Park City. That's uh, I guess it works somehow. You know, it does. They have a great transportation system, so I don't recommend people actually driving very much. Drive up here, somehow get a parking place, and then let the buses show you around because parking is nearly impossible. Uh, so there's something called New Frontier, 10th anniversary, apparently. Yes, uh, they began the New Frontier program several years ago, and it was an opportunity for different companies to bring in kind of more of their new gadgets and, and push the envelope to show what what technology is doing and, and give people a chance to kind of test it out. This year is their 10th anniversary, so they're kind of doing even a bigger push. Uh, they have a new 
venue on Main Street. They're at the Clay Jumper Hotel. And they have some kind of interesting things going on. You can stop down, and uh, they have a, a program called Sequenced, which is the first interactive animated series. And they're giving people an opportunity to actually go into the series and become, I believe, an animated character and see themselves. And then there's also something called Condition One Virtual Reality, which is allowing people to uh, put themselves in a jungle where a jaguar is stalking them. I don't know if that sounds a lot of fun, <laughs> but <laughs> it mm-hmm. should be pretty interesting. Um, and this is uh, this is something that's free to the public. So this is a great thing for people to stop off and and see. And that's on Main Street on the third floor of the Claim Jumper Hotel, the old historic hotel there. Yeah. What about hot spots? Places to go? You go to the screenings, of course, but uh, a lot else going on. Well, you know, there's a couple other things that people don't always think about to do, but sometimes because they're not in a film theater. And that is the off-screen panels. And there are quite a few of those, and those are featuring some interesting directors. Matt Damon on Saturday is hosting one called uh, Buy the Lady a Drink, and it's him, and his, he has a partner in a company that looks at the shortage of water that's going on in the global, and it's out them talking about ways of that we can save our global water crisis. Um, also, director Christopher Nolan, who, of course, started here uh, with Memento several years ago and then directed the Batman series, uh, Interstellar, Inception, and a whole bunch of other stuff. He is going to be doing a panel discussion. Uh, Norman Lear will be doing one. John Krasinski, I think Chelsea Handler. I don't know what kind of panel discussion that will be. Actor Michael Shannon will also be doing one. So this is something a lot of people don't always think about doing. And then one of the other things that I think will be interesting is the Music Cafe. They always have some interesting performances going on there. Public can get into it. These are ticketed, but public can also get into it on a space-available basis. And I know that a lot of music will be going on. The big one will be Sting. He's going to be performing on, I believe, Saturday. And he's going to be here because he is supporting uh, the documentary Jim, which is the film about journalist James Foley, who was executed by ISIS, and a big story uh, not too long ago. So he's going to be there. He has a song in the movie. So he and uh, Jay Ralph, I think, is the one who he's doing that song with. So he'll be there for that. Also, Charles Kelly from Lady Antebellum. I understand John Legend is going to be performing as well. So those are some really good uh, alternatives to just seeing movies. We'll just have a couple minutes uh, here left. What uh, what are you most looking forward to? Uh, you, uh, the whole experience, I guess, going to be up there the whole, the whole time? Yes, I am up here the entire time. And I think when I first started, it was just the films. I came up just, just to see those. But now that I've been doing it for so long, there's just so many other things going on that just even walking around Main Street, feeling the excitement in the air. I mean, you know, some people like to go and watch for celebrities walking up and down. And, uh, and I mean, there's just so many things. There's something going on all the time. If you can't get into a movie, you know, don't worry about it. It's just a movie. You know, a lot of people get kind of upset if they can't get in, but 
uh, go enjoy Main Street and, and eat out and, and go into all these little free things. There's there's all up and down Main Street, Hollywood's kind of come and bought or rented spots. So they all have little booths and little stores on Main Street. So that's going to be uh, just go and hang out there and enjoy it. Well, yeah, it sounds fun. Uh, we appreciate you telling us about it, and we'll be hearing from uh, Steve Smith uh, throughout the, the run of uh, Sundance and various uh, programs. Uh, Steve Smith, our UPR Sundance correspondent, joined us from Park City. Uh, it's the opening day of the Sundance Film Festival. Steve, thanks. Thanks, Tom. And uh, we uh, go next to a couple of interviews with filmmakers whose films are appearing in the Sundance Film Festival for this year. Later on, we'll be talking with Otto Bell. His film, The Eagle Huntress, executive produced by Morgan Spurlock, tells the true story of Ashulpan. She's a 13-year-old eagle huntress. She is the only female uh, eagle uh, hunter from Mongolia. This is uh, um, Kazakh people who are living on Mongolia. They have a 2,000-year history of hunting with eagles, and she's trying to break down a gender barrier there. And as you'll hear, there's going to be an eagle demonstration. You'll be able to meet this young lady in Park City during the run of, of the film. But uh, next up, we go to Josh Fox. His uh, films Gasland and Gasland 2 are credited with galvanizing the anti-fracking movement. Gasland was nominated for an Academy Award. His new film is called How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. And we'll be talking about climate change, renewable energy, and nonviolence. I reached uh, Josh Fox yesterday. So this, uh, this sounds like an interesting uh, film, traveling to 12 countries on six continents. The film acknowledges that it may be too late to stop some of the worst consequences of climate change and asks, what is it that climate change can't destroy? What is so deep within us that no calamity can uh, take away? Uh, first question, what, how did this uh, come about? You, Of course, you... Uh, been heavily involved in the anti-fracking fight and made a couple of films on that, Gasland, Gasland 2. Uh, yes. how, did, how did you transition to uh, climate change in general here? Well, when you're working on anything regarding fossil fuels, and for me, this was started uh, with dealing with the fracking industry in, in my own backyard, who were threatening to take over my entire area, the pristine um, watershed area of the Delaware River Basin, which provides water to 16 million people um, in New York and southern New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And um, so I got dragged into the question of uh, fossil fuels, water contamination, air pollution, health problems, um, destruction of civil liberties, um, infiltration of our democracy by money interests who have so much money that they can outstrip you know, what citizens' concerns are. Every single one of those things goes double and triple and a hundred times when you're talking about climate change. Climate change is simply the biggest uh, issue that we as a species, as humanity, has ever had to face. So, you know, as I was working on Gasland and then subsequently Gasland Part 2, um, the issue of climate change loomed very large in the background or, or in the foreground. And those two films were, very, you know, were, were too specific really to dive into the subject as a whole. So over the last six years, we've been amassing research and interviews and, and questions um, and expertise on climate change. And, you know, it came time to finally really focus on the subject because it dawned on me that although we won against fracking in New York State, we banned fracking in all of New York State, we won in the Upper Delaware River. My immediate backyard is not in danger of being fracked. It dawned on me, however, that uh, it, even if we won against the frackers in our own backyards, we could lose everything we love. 
about those areas to climate change. Um, for example, in the in the woods where I live, there's a parasite called the woolly adelgid, which has been sweeping all the way up the east coast from West Virginia, from Virginia all the way up to Maine, every year advancing further and further and further north, because every year it gets warmer and warmer, and that parasite is allowed to come and eat, and it's eating our hemlock forests, our iconic hemlock forests. This is something you know quite a bit about in the American West because of the uh, the other uh, tree beetles that are eating forests of the American West, which are also a consequence of warming. So um, when you, And then, of course, um, that wake-up call coming for me at a time when New York City uh, got uh, smashed by Hurricane Sandy and seeing communities in New York City go underwater and get completely devastated. New Yorkers, uh, some of them, the water rushed in so quickly that they drowned in their own homes. Um, this was a, a real wake-up call. Um, and so I think that those events conspiring together really pushed me to start the film in earnest. Um, and then, of course, that film uh, took me traveling all over the world to, uh, for this exploration. Um, six continents, 12 countries. Uh, and when you really start to understand how, how late we are in addressing climate change, how bad it is right now, how far along we are, there is really no other <clears throat> choice but to recognize the fact that climate change will destroy so many things. Our, um, our forests will, uh, the, the, the problem with parasites in our forests will get worse. Our food security will get worse. Our tornado swarms, um, hurricanes, uh, droughts, floods, all of these things will get worse. And, of course, the, the big question of sea level rise, which has threatened to engulf our coastal cities, um, on the East Coast especially, uh, very, very vulnerable to even just a few meters of sea level rise. And the forecast that we have uh, from the CO2 in the, in the atmosphere right now is of a five to nine meter sea level rise. <clears throat> so it's very distressing. And you have to kind of come to grips with how much change we are going to be navigating through as a species. And when you do that, the last thing that you want to do is indulge a civilization that's based greed, and, con and competition, um, and which is in many ways extremely violent and destructive. What you want to do then is encourage in humanity um, those virtues and those values which we all need to get through times of crisis. Community, human rights, democracy, love, resilience, courage. These are the things that climate can't change. And so that is um, in many ways the roller coaster ride of this story. And those virtues and values are taught to me by people all over the world who have no choice in dealing with climate change. People in the Pacific Islands uh, who are losing their homes right now to sea level rise. Uh, folks in the Amazon who are reporting on oil spills deep, deep into the jungle that are perpetuated by the negligent oil companies that have been there for 40 years. People in the American West looking at the beetle kill in the forest. Uh, those, uh, a person, uh, a Utah hero, uh, and Tim DeChristopher, who spent two years in federal prison, um, defending uh, public lands in Utah from oil and gas drilling. These are the places, uh, these are the people that we find who are incredibly inspiring and their stories are amazing and heartrending and, and, and very, very emotional. So I think the film doesn't focus so much on the science as often happens with climate change. It's quite dry. This is a human story, the human face, and I think it's a real emotional roller coaster ride for people to, for people to go through. 
You said, and this is another, another speech, I'll make reference to this a little later in the, the conversation, uh, a recent address to the International uh, Anti-Fracking Summit, which happened in Paris. Uh, here's your statement. We have to reconcile ourselves to the realities of uh, climate change. And on the one hand, that could seem pretty, I don't know, de- depressing. Uh, did, did you find hope out there? Yes, um, but listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a practical person. And when you recognize that there is a certain level of sea level rise that's going to happen no matter what. I think it's it's equally important to toe in and put your you know nose to the grindstone and fight um, against climate change, as it is also important to acknowledge the fact that in those red zones where we know the sea rise, there are nuclear power plants, there are toxic waste facilities, there are gas stations, there are oil refineries that will be swamped. And it is, in many cases, a, a decades-long process to move those things. So we have to start to think in practical realities that we're going to have to move a lot of toxic sites simply to not contaminate the oceans as they rise. These are some of the things that we have to concede. And that is a very practical reality, thinking about humanity and future generations. You know, it takes 20 to 30 years to decommission a nuclear power plant. If we're talking about extreme weather events that threaten our shorelines, we're going to have to think about shutting those things down and moving them. That's a simple practical uh, point of, of making some of the – what I'm talking about in terms of conceding some of the basics, right? Um, but I also know that um, you know, we have people who are facing that crisis now. On the Rockaways, for example, in New York City, the community there that I interviewed, they said, look, we're stronger now than we were before the storm, before Superstorm Sandy that washed away so much of what they knew in their neighborhoods. They said, we're stronger now. And it's because their community rose up and became connected to each other and worked out of a sense of community and dignity and and, um, mutual care for each other. That is the thing that strengthened that community. So, of course, there's hope, but, it, but there's hope when we gravitate towards the best of what we can be as human beings. And those are those civic values that I mentioned. Uh, civil disobedience, resistance, resilience, love, the, the capacity for generosity. These are the things that we have in, in a crisis at the best of, in the best of us, right? So that's what we have to encourage. There's always hope for humanity if we can um, start to instill those values in, our, uh, in the fabric of our, of our system. Currently, our system is based on greed and competition, and that, those aren't probably great values to base anything on. Uh, we have to come to terms with the fact that that and the fundamental um, social and economic inequality are some of the drivers of climate change. And if we are to have um, any chance of winning, we have to start to instill a different and more sustainable sense of values in our society. And we're going to need those values even more if we start to really lose. Because the truth is, when you have communities that are in chaos, when you have uh, hundreds of millions of climate refugees, when you have cities underwater and people who don't have enough to eat, that is the most important time where we can engage in um, a sense that we are all one humankind and we have to support each other, rather than we have to tear each other apart for, for basic resources, which is what is happening now. If you just joined us, we are talking with Josh Fox. He is a filmmaker behind Gasland and Gasland 2. He's out with a new film. It's an official selection at Sundance. Uh, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. 
Uh, and Josh Fox is with us uh, for this part of the program uh, today. Josh Fox, I, I made reference to this address you gave. Uh, it was a remote address, uh, I guess recorded, uh, be, uh, to the International Anti-Fracking Summit, which was happening in Paris about a month ago. You were un- unable to go because you were finalizing your film because it had been selected at uh, Sundance. Um, you made some interesting points in in that uh, speech, um, and you made a co- connection between uh, th- three principles. So, uh, fighting climate change, renewable energy, and uh, nonviolence. I thought it was interesting linking up those those three principles. Well, um, you know, <clears throat> I um, I I think about the departure from fossil fuels as a peace issue. Um, I think about it as an issue where we're talking about uh, getting rid of uh, tyranny. I remember, um, you know, a lot of the very specious and puerile arguments of the fossil fuel industry and the fracking industry who attacked me and said, oh, you're attacking the American fossil fuel industry. You must be getting money from Vladimir Putin in Russia (laughs) or, you know, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, all these incredibly ridiculous aspersions cast on my character by the frackers. When all I was trying to do was report on a crisis that was happening to Americans on... um, you know, in their own backyards, where you had multinational oil companies coming in, destroying their water tables, um, making their lives very, very difficult and dangerous. And, you know, these are human rights violations, as defined by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. When you destroy someone's healthy environment, when you destroy the ability for them to have a healthy life, um, as what is happening with fracking all across America, especially in uh, you know, one of my home states of uh, PA, I live on the border of PA in New York, um, Pennsylvania, that is. And, you know, when you do that in Wyoming, for example, you're committing an act of violence um, towards the community, towards the people. If you can't, these kids in, in those houses can't breathe healthy air at night, and they're waking up with nosebleeds and asthma. Um, and the asthma rate, for example, in the Barnett Shale in Texas is four times the statewide average, where you have 10 uh, you have 25% of 10-year-olds in the Barnett Shale where the fracking industry was born, where there's 10,000 gas wells. 25% of 10-year-olds have asthma in that region. Um, yeah, that is the question of, uh, of doing violence to a population, as well as the fact when you consider that, you know, the Iraq War, um, the Afghanistan War, uh, right now the Syrian Civil War, which is a, a climate change civil war. So many of these armed conflicts around the globe have to do with oil. So when these people said, oh, you're, you're, you know, you must be supporting uh, Vladimir, it was laughable. But what I said, no, of course, what I support is real American energy independence and real worldwide energy independence. And when we're talking about energy independence, we're talking about renewable energy. You can't export the sun and the wind. You have to keep those where they are. So when you're talking about solar and wind and geothermal and hydropower and these things that are going to create community-based distributed generation of renewable energy. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about American energy independence or energy independence in general. And if you're talking about fossil fuels, you are going to be supporting tyranny, tyranny of one kind or another. Either that's the tyranny of Putin, the tyranny of Chavez, or the tyranny, quite frankly, of George W. Bush who decided that it was okay to go ahead and invade other countries um, and kill hundreds of thousands of people um, for, with absolutely no national security crisis, and, and none of the actual things that they said that war was about were true. Um, 
So you have to understand that when, when we're talking about freedom from foreign oil, freedom from oil in general, freedom um, uh, from these oppressive fuels, which are fuels of death. These are literally dead things under the ground. They're toxic materials. Oil and gas are toxic materials. When we bring to the surface, we wreak havoc on our environment. Um, so what we're talking about here is, uh, you know, something that is pro-democracy, pro-human rights, pro-peace. Um, and that is what I've seen across the world. And when we want to encourage the development of renewable energy as a sustainable resource, we also need to encourage hand-in-hand hand with that um, a system of values that respects, uh, you know, who we really are and who we really aspire to be as a nation and, and as a peaceful world, which are human rights and democracy. A couple of statements. I'll, I'll present these together and have you respond to that you made in the speech I found interesting. Um, you said that you're not finding as much enthusiasm for renewable energy, this is among the environmental community, as you found in stopping, say, fracking. So, so a disparity in enthusiasm. And then you're proposing, you, you say if you're going to counter a proposal, if you're going to stop, uh, say, a fracking, for one example, you need to be, uh, the environmental movement needs to be proposing a, a counter proposals. Yes, true. Well, that, thank you for picking up on that. Um, so listen, uh, I've been involved with the ban fracking movement since its inception in 2009, and we've had enormous success with this ban fracking movement. We've banned fracking in New York State ban fracking in the Upper Delaware River Basin, ban fracking in France and Italy and Bulgaria and parts of, parts of Australia, a lot of parts of Germany, Ireland, Scotland, um, you know, parts of South Africa, four different towns in Colorado voted by referendum to ban fracking. In fact, the birthplace of fracking itself, Denton, Texas, voted by uh, referendum to ban fracking. Um, we have a ban fracking movement on the rise in California and so many other places. So the ban fracking movement has been very amazing successful, um, passionate, organized, creative, and really uh, steadfast, I would say. Um, and at the same time, you know, there is no ban on fossil fuels without replacing the fuel. Um, you can have all the legislative bans you want. You're essentially campaigning to turn the lights off in the hospital in the middle of an operation unless you replace that fuel source because we are dependent on fossil fuels, and every part of our society is dependent on fossil fuels. So the only true ban is to work with that same diligence and that same passion and fervor for the alternative for renewable energy. So um, unfortunately, however, human beings, I think, part psychologically, um, tend to get more motivated by the negative, by the threat, than they are in terms of building the positive. I think that we're wired that way um, process negative information more deeply simply because that was a key to our survival on the planet, you know, being hunted by animals. So we have this tendency to go negative. Um, and so the negative riles people up, ban fracking, ban, you know, and, and we see that that has triumphed. On the other side of it, though, when you're talking about building positivity and building a renewable energy, there's a couple of factors here which I think are difficult. One is You've just been completely exhausted by seven or six years of fighting fracking, and you need a break for a minute. And doing that next step is hugely transformative and also very difficult. Um, and the other part of it is that we have so many options with renewable energy that oftentimes there is a kind of consumer or choice-based paralysis. 
you think, oh, do I put solar panels on my roof, or do I get buy power from a company like Ethical Electric uh, or Arcadia that can supply supply clean energy directly to my house by switching my uh, electricity bill, or do I get an electric car, or do I do geothermal loops, or do I insulate better so I use far far less energy? There are such there are insulation plans for houses right now that you could heat your whole house with a hard drive or a candle. I'm not kidding. Um, if you develop like a passive house, which is incredibly well uh, insulated. Should I get a heat pump? So there are all these options, and they're not small purchases. They're big, considered purchases. So you have to think about them, and it takes months. And then, of course, that's only your obligation, individual side of things, when oftentimes these questions are ones that are posed to communities. When you're talking about a community that's fighting a pipeline or a gas-fired, frack gas power plant, you know, you really need high level of expertise to then say, okay, well, what kind of plant is it? Is it a peaker plant? Um, is it, you know, how many megawatts is it? You need real renewable energy expertise in the room that's going to teach you about how to go renewable. So that's, you know, all of that exists. Right now we have the technology, we have the investment, we have the uh, economic uh, favorable atmosphere in many, many places. In a lot of states you have a favorable atmosphere in terms of legislation on developing renewable energy. We have the expertise. We have the grassroots movement on the ground. The big issue here is syncing all these things up and putting them in the same place and getting people really motivated to uh, do um, to build that positive future. So in many ways, I was, um, in that uh, speech, spurring on um, pushing the anti-fracking movement to make sure that they don't get tired after they win their battle or if they do win their battle um, or even in the midst of their battle. We need to be able to move ahead and, and so what we're doing with this new film um, is we're going to tour to 100 cities across America and go to all of these hotspots where people are fighting a pipeline, fighting a power plant, fighting a fracking field, fighting a coal mine expansion, um, and go to those places with our film, with the grassroots uh, groups that are on the ground and, and host a screening, but we're also going to leave behind expertise traveling with um, people from uh, the renewable energy industry, uh, neutral third-party advisors who can advise people on their personal renewable energy makeup in their homes and help them uh, go through that process of greening everything in their life. Um, and then we're also going to be working in conjunction with the National Renewable Energy Labs to take this on in terms of the community. National Renewable Energy Labs in, in, in uh, Golden, Colorado, an amazing facility of uh, the American government has agreed to help us advise communities on how to create counterproposals on a community basis. That's the kind of thing that no layperson can do. That takes supercomputers. That takes real expertise. So luckily, um, as we reach out to communities that are fighting the fossil fuel industry, we're going to have that as a resource um, where we can move forward and make uh, strides there and give people the kind of expertise that they need free of charge. Um, so that's the next level. Of, after Sundance, we're going to be embarking on that 100-city tour. Um, we're uh, at the, the website for a film, which is howtoletgomovie.com. Uh, there's a trailer there, but howtoletgomovie.com will give you a, an opportunity to email us to say we want to request a screening, um, and we'll, we'll, you know, we're going to try to figure out how to go to as many places as we can, uh, both in small towns and big cities, uh, in movie theaters and in you know, community halls alike. This is something we did with Gasland. Uh, very, very effectively. And then, of course, eventually the film um, in the spring, uh, late spring, will be on HBO. But the idea that we're going to towns and we're going to places which are hotspots is very, very important to us. It's how we built um, 
a really long a lot uh, audience I think and and constituency and anti fracking movement with the Gathan one and two movies we toured to 350 cities over the course of eight years. Um, this is a hundred city tour we hope to do this year and and that's the way that we're going to help um, you know spur action enthusiasm and uh, emotional motivation towards building a positive future. If you just join us, we're talking with Josh uh, Fox. He's a filmmaker, and uh, you probably know him from Gasland and Gasland 2. His latest film is How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, and it's an official selection at the Sundance Film Festival. So, Josh Fox, imagine there, m- there may be some in our listening audience right now that uh, want you to come to their town on their tour. Again, how do they get a hold of you? I think at the website howtoletgomovie.com, there's a sign-up there, and I think that there's an option for uh, people to uh, request a screening. Um, I, th- I, I can also give out screenings, gaslandthemovie.com. That's another email. If you want to just okay. email us straight away, so we want to go. So howtoletgomovie.com, I believe, has a tab that says request a screening. Um, but if not, uh, just email screenings at gaslandthemovie.com. Um, or simply uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, there's two Facebook pages. You could go to the Gasland Facebook page, or you could go to the How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Climate Can't Change Facebook page. Um, both of those uh, have the option of messaging us, and uh, we'll get the message there, too. Excellent. Oh, and I think yes. right after Sundance, I think we're going to Vernal and oh. to Moab. Oh, great. Um, we're in negotiation yeah. for that now. So stay tuned, because I do believe we're going to go to Vernal and Moab right after Sundance. Oh, Vernal's my hometown, so that'll, that'll be interesting. Vernal and Moab, uh-huh. then. Excellent. Yeah. Finally, I I was very struck by a story you told in, in that speech that I've been referencing. You were you were in New York during 9-11. Yeah. And it's very interesting, the connections you made. I wonder if you'd tell us that story in brief and then the connection you made there. Well, I was in New York during 9-11. And um, my, I was running a theater company. Um, my theater company, which I still work with, um, called International Wow Company, which is a company of actors from all over the world. Which um, We make plays based on the actors' experiences and lives, so it is a documentary process inside of it, in a way. And 9-11 happened in the middle of our summer program, where I had 80 or so actors coming over to our space in Brooklyn um, every day, and, and Monday was our day off. So we had workshops and classes and different projects being proposed, and the house was crazy <laughs> six days a week. The only day off we had was Monday. So Monday was our quiet day. Tuesday, of course, of uh, September 11th was the Tuesday. So I spent most of this, uh, September 11th trying to locate all these actors to make sure that they were okay, um, all of our community. And thankfully, and we had some people who worked in the, in the Trade Center. I, I did part-time work in the Trade Center as a gardener, actually. Um, we had people who worked right under it in other office buildings. Oh, oh, thankfully, everybody was okay. Um, and we were all night people. We would build sets all night. We would rehearse all night. And so one of uh, our theater company members said, you know, my cousin's doing a food drive out of Church of Our Lady of Pompeii, which is a church on 6th Avenue um, in New York City. Will you come down and do this all night food drive? And we said absolutely. Because people were dying to volunteer, and there was no jobs. It was like no, you know, nobody needed to give. People lining up to give blood. People were lining up to volunteer in some way, and it was very scarce that you could actually have an opportunity here. So we said yes, yes, we'll go. So my job was to call restaurants all night long, and ask them to donate food um, for uh, uh, the the firemen and the police officers and the con ed workers who were down underneath uh, sorting through the rubble. 
and we would get huge amounts of donations. We got, um, you know, Joe's Pizza. We had 12 pizzas, you know, and we, and then finally what we would do is we would take all this incredible New York food, you know, and from gourmet restaurants, you know, you're talking about like crazy, amazing food, and put that all on hand trucks and walk it downtown through the firehouses. And, you know, this was one of the first times where I had a respirator mask, which was left over from production. I was wearing that respirator mask, and we were, because the air was so thick with dust. It was like staring at static on a TV. You know, you couldn't see a block down the street, and it was, you would wade through it. It was knee high in some places. Just this incredibly weird concrete dust. I have a coffee cup full of it at home in my little 911 shrine. And it was such a strange and uh, dystopian universe. Uh, and we walked down to one of the fire stations on Pitt Street and got to the front of the station, and the fireman came out and said, don't come in here with your food. We've got tons of food, but we don't have any people. It was uh, very, very emotional. Um, and so we came waved down to go further and further down towards the trade centers, by the cops, go down there, go keep going, you'll find people. And, uh, man, I, we got lost because you couldn't tell where you were. I mean, there was so, it was so difficult. This was like 5 o'clock in the morning on Thursday the 13th. And we turned a corner, and there, we're on Church Street, and I look um, to my right, and I see there's the press barricade two blocks north. And I look over my shoulder left, and there is the broken and twisted facade of World Trade Center, uh, and through it comes this sunrise and lights it up like a golden house of fire. It was like one of the most amazing and crazy and weird things I've ever seen. My friend Connie turned to me and she goes, why is it so beautiful? And she burst into tears. It was one of the most weird, because you got to imagine, sun has never come through there before, right? The Trade Centers were in the way, and now it's coming through um, on this brilliant September morning with all this dust in the air. So we wander up. We had no no idea what to do. We wandered up towards the press barricade. We were on the other side of it. And this woman um, comes up to me, and she's uh, in a kind of red uh, sort of suit. And she goes, hey, uh, what are you guys doing? <laughs> we were like, well, we're delivering food. We had a big banner on the side of this uh, hand truck that said Church of Pompeii. Um, very, very surreal. And, she, uh, and we, we told her what we were doing. She goes, well do you want to be on GMA? And she looked kind of bored. And we were like, I looked at my friend Aaron. And I said, do we want to, what's GMA? And she goes, good morning, America. And we looked at each other and Aaron, we were dirty and we were rough and full of dust. And Aaron just shakes off. No, 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 no. I don't want to be on GMA. We don't want to be on GMA. We just want to do, um, what, uh, what we're doing. And, uh, I, 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 I regret that to this day. Because if I had gone GMA, I would have said to the world and to our leaders, uh, we're here in New York. We're watching ourselves suffer. We've had our buildings blown up, and we don't want a, a war. We don't want a, a war in our names. You know, a war is just, you know, you blow up our buildings and people, and we blow up your buildings and people. It's insanity and it's nonsense. And we don't want a war in, resp in response to that. And it was, I thought it was very important for me to say that and to tell that story. Uh, because Paris happened and the climate change uh, COP conference happened just weeks after the terrorist attacks in Paris. And the Parisians, a, a country that I love, uh, the, uh, the French, um, 
you know, who, who are one of the most amazing uh, groups of activists who banned fracking. Uh, 20,000 uh, people marched in the streets and banned fracking in Paris, and I have very strong ties to the community there. And um, I needed to say, listen, don't bomb kids in Syria as a retribution. When you bl- blow up and send your bombing raids over these cities to uh, somehow uh, retaliate for these terror attacks, which, by the way, were uh, European, not Syrians <laughs> there, you are simply going to perpetuate this cycle of senseless violence. You're going to kill innocent children when you drop bombs on those places in Syria. You are going to perpetuate creating more terrorism. When we started those wars out of our ashes in 9-11, which were not uh, supported by New Yorkers, by and large, I will say, I was one of millions who marched in the streets against those wars, there was no ISIS. There was no terror threat. There had not been a single suicide bombing in the history of Iraq. Now there's one every month or every week. You know, we created a situation where terrorism is crazy and out of control, and uh, and that was done out of retribution, blind rage. And as Martin Luther King said, you know, an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. And that is what I said on Good Morning America. And so in many ways, I felt it was my obligation to say to people in France, do not go down this road. Do not go down the road of retribution. Um, and so for me, when we're retired, look at the European refugee crisis. You know, Syria suffered its worst drought in its history. All five years of no rain. Farmers went and protested the Assad regime. Um, those farmers put in jail or tortured, and that lit off the Syrian civil war. It's the world's first climate change civil war. And now you're seeing Syrians and Iraqis and people from the Middle East swarming across European boundaries, creating a refugee crisis um, in Europe. That is something, all of these things are related. And we have to have sane and considered and peaceful and human responses to these crises. We can't simply drop bombs out of blind rage. You know, we must be able to have a more sophisticated response than that. So these things are connected. And, and I, I brought up that 9-11 story particularly that I wanted to address as a person who went through um, that in, in my city, in New York City, um, to address the response that people should have and how people were feeling in Paris. I felt it was important in a gesture of solidarity as a New Yorker who went through that to talk about it. Well, we've reached the end of our time here. The film is How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. It's a film by Josh Fox. You probably know him from Gasland and Gasland 2. The website is uh, howtoletgomovie.com. I'll just give you the first couple of screenings. It'll uh, screen at Sundance. It's an official selection at Sundance. Uh, First is Saturday, 5.45 p.m., Temple Theater in Park City. Second screening is Sunday, 8.30 a.m. at Egyptian Theater. There are others. We'll get this up on our our website uh, as well. Josh Fox, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. Hey, thank you. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. Uh, we are uh, previewing some films at Sundance. It's opening day at Sundance uh, 2016. Coming up, following a break, Otto Bell with his film, The Eagle Huntress. Uh, 13-year-old Eagle Huntress is trying to break 2,000-year-old all-male tradition, Kazakh people in Mongolia. Stay tuned. Programming on Utah Public Radio 
is made possible in part by our members and the Wasserman Festival, presenting pianist Spencer Meyer, performing works by Mozart, Ravel, and Schumann. Thursday, January 28th at 7.30 p.m. in the Kane Performance Hall. Tickets are at arts.usu.edu. Up next, uh, we're going to talk uh, about a film called The Eagle Huntress. For 2,000 years, the Kazakh people of the Altai region in western Mongolia have practiced a tradition of hunting with golden eagles, whose wingspan can reach up to seven and a half feet. Uh, Though this practice has traditionally been the domain of men, Ashulpan decides that she wants to become an apprentice hunter after spending her childhood helping her father-renowned eagle hunter care for his bird. She's uh, 13 years old. And we've reached the director, Otto Bell. Otto Bell, welcome to the program. Hello, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. Uh, So how did you get connected with this story? Oh, gosh. It was back in about April 2014, Tom. I I saw some remarkable pictures on the BBC. And they were by a young Israeli photographer, a guy called Asher Sudinsky, a a co-producer on the film. And he had stumbled across this girl in his travels through the Altai region of northwestern Mongolia and taken some just the most spellbinding pictures uh, of this young girl as she was taking her first steps uh, to becoming an eagle hunter. I was just immediately moved by them. I was, I was sitting at my desk in New York. It was, it was like my, my senses joined together for a second. And I, I, I saw the pictures and I immediately saw the film the film behind them. Um, and I thought, you know, that if the pictures are, are this sort of moving and profound, I can only imagine what would happen if we added sight, sound, motion, and kind of all the other senses and saw her walking and talking and, and living a life. It just immediately made me wonder about, about the life that she led in this astounding uh, location. And, um, and we took it from there. We filmed with them uh, for about a year, uh, visiting, visiting Mongolia, six or seven times. You, you spent a year with them. Um, tell me about this, people. They're, they're Kazakhs, but they're in Mongolia. That's right. That's right. They're part of um, a nomadic tribe of Kazakhs, which has roamed the Altai Mountains, you know, since long before the days of, of Genghis Khan. Um, so really, that, that region spreads through China, Russia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, um, all the way through. So, so really, before time that there were political borders as we understand them now, this this tribe has 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 moved around that region, um, uh, herding uh, cattle and and goats. So uh, it, it's it's really a very ancient tribe that kind of predates our modern, our modern understanding of uh, of uh, clean political borders. And uh, uh, apparently. Two thousand years uh, the, 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 they've been doing using the eagles. I guess using maybe the yeah. word or interacting as with eagles. As far as we can tell, yeah, yeah. Wow, they, amazing. Um, it, it goes, it goes, it goes back that that far. And really, there's no there's no recorded evidence of a woman ever attempting to take on this tradition. So for a thirteen year old girl to be the first female um, is, is really, I think, uh, quite something quite special. Was there is there pushback? Like this is a very old tradition. No woman ever. Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the thing. It's, it's so the, the Altai region where we filmed is the most remote part 
of the least populated country in the world. <laughs> so um, uh, Mongolia, it's about the size of, I think, Germany, France and Spain put together. But they've only got three million people. And within that, this is the, this, this is the most, uh, uh, most remote part of that country. So this isolation has led to an incredible preservation of ancient traditions. But in this case, it's also engendered a kind of um, uh, bias against women. Women have, have long been thought to be too fragile or too weak to hunt with an eagle. Um, and, uh, you know, Ashul Pan uh, sets out to prove, to prove them wrong and really, really change history in the film. So, yes, there are, there are certainly um, naysayers in the film who continue to challenge her. And, and push her to prove herself in, in, in new and extraordinary ways. Um, and she makes the challenges. Um, did she set out to, I'm guessing it was probably as simple as I, I want to, I want to do this, right? Uh, versus you know, breaking down gender barriers. I mean, that's, that's perhaps what's going to happen, but probably just her interest in working with the Eagles. That, that's exactly it. It, it. She had seen her father and her grandfather. Um, her father's a master eagle hunter, um, winning festivals and competing uh, across the country and in, indeed around the world. So she'd really grown up with eagles and was sort of, uh, you know, utterly transfixed by by her father's eagles when she was when she was growing up. So it's it's very much sort of in her blood. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't think it was a, a, a well. I know it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a crusade uh, for female empowerment in her eyes. It was just a passion which she had, and she saw no reason why she shouldn't pursue it. Uh, and uh, you know, we don't want to give away the film's ending, but this is in the <laughs> the blurb. Uh, she'll have to compete against seventy eagle hunters on her quest to gain acceptance. Uh, competition, That's right? Yeah, yeah. There's an annual eagle festival, Tom. <laughs> I didn't, I wow. didn't know there was such a thing, but um, uh, there is. So um, every October, it's quite a dwindling tradition, eagle hunting. So there's only about an estimated 250 eagle hunters left in the world, and every October, around 70 of them gather in the Bayanolgi region of of northwest Mongolia, just in the in the foothills of the Altai Mountains. And, uh, you know, they, they, they strut their stuff and they compete in various categories. And um, she was the, the first woman in the history of the festival to enter. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting sequence in the film to see how she does against, against all these, these older men. Now, of course, the film will be screening, uh, but you're, you also have an eagle demonstration. Tell me about that. Yeah, no, the, the family arrived uh, yesterday in New York. And we'll be traveling out to the, the family will be traveling out to Utah for the festival. So we've brought mom, dad, um, Ashulpan herself, and um, and and the translator who's who's part of the tribe. Uh, one of the one of their family members um, who speaks good English. She's coming over to to help uh, explain things. Mm. But uh, yeah, we we we've, we found a, a tradition traditional Mongolian gur which we're going to be setting up uh, down by the Kimball Arts Center. Uh, and then we have uh, the, uh, the Comanche Indians um, uh, are from Oklahoma are bringing two golden eagles to the film festival so that we can do live demonstrations, catching and releasing 
the Eagle, uh, hopefully up and down Main Street. Should be fun. Well, uh, down down Main Street. That, that should be. That should be. <laughs> I don't quite know. We have to figure out where yeah. we're allowed to do it. But uh, <laughs> that would be my hope. That would be a sight to see, wouldn't it? That would be. <laughs> well, when are, when is this going to be happening? Can we go to get a website, find out, or just periodically? Or uh, yes. Um, I, well, we're, we're setting up the gear on Friday morning, which is their traditional kind of yurt structure. Um, and then there will be eagle demonstrations throughout Friday, Saturday. And then the premiere of the film is on Sunday. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so just in, in, in conclusion, t- tell me about, uh, and, and maybe you could frame this in, what would a person see if they went to Park City and saw this eagle demonstration? The hunter releases mm. the eagle, the eagle goes and hunts and brings the prey back. What, what happens? Yeah, well, um, what we tend to do uh, the, for the demonstration, I think what we're, we're, we're going to attempt to do, should we, should we be allowed, is... Um, uh, Ashulpan's father will will um, or uh, will hold a piece of uh, a piece of meat, a sort of a, uh, a treat, if you like, for the eagle. And Ashulpan will release the eagle, and it'll um, soar through the air and, and, and zero in on that um, zero in on that tip bit and grab it. And then they'll probably trade as well. So Ashulpan will do a catch and release, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you say it's this practice is dwindling. Is it still an important part of the culture? Oh, very much so. It's intrinsically tied to the Kazakh sort of sense of their identity. Um, it's just, you know, with the sort of onset of modernity, you're seeing more and more Kazakhs moving from this remote region to some of the largest cities like Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital in Mongolia. So it, it's it's just not being refreshed at the rate which I think it needs to be. And that's why Ashulpan is, is such a bright star, because... She, her name actually means North Star in, in the language. But, she, you know, that's why she's such a beacon, because not only is she a female, she's also part of a younger generation of people who are, who are taking up this ancient tradition. So you say that in part it's tied to their masculinity, so that this must be a big shift with Ashopan wanting to do this. Yeah, it, it certainly, um, it certainly has, has ruffled a few feathers. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the film, yeah. as you say, uh, pr- premieres on Sunday. That's 11.30 a.m. Prospector Square Theater in Park City. Uh, then also being shown at 6 p.m. at Salt Lake City Library Theater. And then the following Saturday, Saturday the 30th, 3.30 p.m. Redstone Cinema 1. And Eagle demonstrations will be happening on Friday, you say? Yeah, throughout Friday and Saturday, Tom. Yeah. In, in Park City. That that's, that'll be a sight to see. And you'll be able to meet Ashapan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please come along and, and, and see this ancient tradition for yourself. So the film is The Eagle Huntress. It's directed by Otto Bell, who reached here, and uh, it's about Ashopan, a 13-year-old eagle huntress from Mongolia. Uh, Otto Bell, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We very much appreciate the conversation with Otto Bell and previously with uh, Josh Fox. His film is How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. And uh, to begin the program, we talked with our UPR Sundance correspondent, Steve Smith, and he'll be giving his reports throughout the uh, Park City uh, Film Festival, which the Sundance Film Festival, which uh, opens today. We have um, Behind the Headlines tomorrow in this hour, and I hope you'll join us on Monday. We have Governor Herbert and legislative leaders will be live from the state capitol. Thanks for listening today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. 
This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal. KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield. KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab. And KUSU FM HD1, 91.5 Logan. Logan.